the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week, Niru Ratnam argues that teachers are putting principals ahead of children, Gus Carter discusses the curious business of fertility, and Graham Thompson reviews Beyonce at Murrayfield Stadium. Up first, Niru Ratnam. It is a bright Wednesday morning in May. My son, T, a year eight pupil, should be at school and I should be working, but instead we are playing tennis. We are also listening to Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits because he's supposed to be studying and playing class, so I figure I can cover both PE and English literature the next half an hour before we head home and I start the work I'm meant to be doing. My son isn't ill and isn't playing truant. His school, along with five others in Lewisham, South London, is in the middle of 13 days of strike action called by the National Education Union, NEU. Prendergast Ladywell, Prendergast School, Prendergast Vale, Prendergast Sixth Form and Prendergast Primary are all part of the Leathersellers Federation, which wants to turn the schools into a multi-academy trust, an MAT. The NEU is against MATs and academies in general. These strikes are taking place in addition to the days of national action over pay. Third half term, bank holidays and coronations, and basically my son has been going to school once or twice a week through May, and will do until mid-June. Or perhaps mid-July, or perhaps mid-forever, as the union wants to battle its members for more strikes next week after talks broke down again. Until three weeks ago, I had no views whatsoever on academies. T-School used to be a struggling inner-city state secondary that went from getting a solidly bad, requires improvement across all criteria from Ofsted in 2016, to hauling itself up to good just before the pandemic began. It seemed to be going in the right direction under its current head and management team. Then an email popped up in parents' inboxes in mid-February stating that the Federation schools were going to become an MAT and there would be a consultation period until the end of March. Just after the Easter holidays finished, the NEU announced its strike in opposition to the change. My lack of knowledge of, or indeed interest in, the academy issue was swiftly corrected by the WhatsApp groups that sprang up. Bizarrely, the Hollywood actor Mark Ruffalo got involved via Tweet Against Academies. Ruffalo contributed a words of wisdom feature to the school in 2012 and seems to have been contacted by either the NEU or the striking teachers for more wise words. Like Ruffalo's input, most of the initial information flying around seemed pretty random and after a week or so, the only thing I learned that's not debatable is that 80% of UK secondary schools are now academies of all three schools. So it is fair to surmise that the Leathersellers' proposals are not radically different 
from what else is going on around the country. There's one markedly pro-NEU WhatsApp group, which seems to have a mixture of union folk and the occasional strident parent who supports strike action. This is filled with high-minded, unforgiving, anti-academisation people who don't seem to mind that the children are cannon fodder. For them, academies are a Tory ruse designed to hand over control of schools to nasty capitalists who are going to pay themselves huge salaries whilst firing all the lovely teachers. At one point, this group went down the rabbit hole of trying to dig up dirt on the leather sellers, who actually turn out to support the schools through their charitable arm, which is not allowed to be profit-making. But this isn't good enough. The leather sellers are based in the city and so must have nefarious intents. For a while, I was equally in despair with the other main WhatsApp group, made up of parents unhappy with the strike action and who want the Federation and the Union to go back to talks. This sounds good in principle, but for about a week they descended into a long discussion about how they should go about the community wearing non-confrontational badges. This plan, however, was abandoned, initially because no one could find the parent who said they had the badges. Their WhatsApp identification didn't include their photo, but then because the latest round of talks broke down. Now the NEU wants to pause everything and have a working group, but the Federation's main desire is to make sure that the NEU does not strike again in next year's exam season. It wants the union to commit not to strike until June 2024, whereas the union says that it can only agree not to strike again until March 2024. And that's it. Talks fail completely over whether the NEU can call strikes next March or June. This seems typical of the debate, high-minded, abstruse, pointless. Meanwhile, in Lewisham, around 1,500 pupils are not at school. These are kids who have already missed chunks of education through COVID. And because the teachers on strike there is no online learning as there was during the pandemic. Just a couple of revision books tossed at the children when they were in school last Friday. Lewisham, despite pockets of gentrification, is still a poor borough. The NEU's actions, no matter how principal they might seem to the strikers, are setting the kids there further behind. Tennis and literature over, I head back to my emails and work in a sweaty t-shirt. T turns his attention to Red Dead Redemption 2. Over lunch, I ask him if the game counts as history or geography. History, definitely, he replies. What's he learnt in that case from a historical viewpoint? That they had carriages, not cars, in the 18th century. I point out that the game is set at the end of the 19th, and he nods back sagely. Another parent messages to say that their child is watching Netflix, so I feel slightly superior. Still, I realise that this does not quite count as an adequate year eight education. So I ambush T with Colin's KS3 English, complete revision and practice. He complains loudly, but opens it. Ultimately, I'm still not that bothered either way about academies. And given the number of secondary schools that have already converted, the leather sellers MAT feels inevitable. Just my school back at the school he was going to like. Instead, WhatsApp beeps again. Another set of letters being prepared by the parents in one chat, another set of angry missives about the eels of academies in the other. While I've turned away, a bored tea has returned to Red Dead. I pick up the revision book at page 57 and start reading the section headed Features of Writing to Argue. Do not lose sight of the fact that you're looking at both sides of the argument, not just your viewpoint. I close the book. 
and don't call tea back. The PS4 game with guns blazing everywhere and bystanders screaming is, after all, probably more pertinent to real life. That was Nuru Ratnam. Up next, Gus Carter. I've always wanted children. Friends sometimes tease me about my broodiness, apparently uncommon among single 29-year-old men. But unless I've accidentally knocked someone up in the past few months, I'm going to be older than my parents were by the time they had me. I suppose that's normal. The average age at which couples start a family has risen consistently since the mid-1970s. I'm told not to worry. Look at Mick Jagger, whose youngest child was born when he was 73. Men don't suffer from the same biological restraints as women. One acquaintance insists, rather admirably, that she's going to have children by 25, regardless of the consequences. She also insisted on smelling me to test my pheromones, and therefore our compatibility. Even without the sniffing, she's an unusual young professional. Our cohort tends to have children later, if at all. Every university friend, bar one, has chosen to focus on their career rather than having kids. Child-rearing is seen as something done by grown-ups. My friends and I, on the cusp of our 30s and still living in shared rentals, do not feel like adults. In 2020, more than half of British women were childless by the time they reached their 30th birthday, a demographic first. Perhaps that's why Superdrug reported this week that sales of its at-home fertility tests have tripled since December. Aware of my desire for children, a colleague decided to send me to the fertility show held at Olympia London. It's a trade fair for those finding it hard to conceive, where teal seems to be the unofficial colour of reproduction. IVF clinicians, donor agency workers and even nutritionists stood in front of teal hoardings, handing out teal pens. They sat on teal sofas, chatting through fertility plans with women in white, teal-inflected trainers. Even the carpet was teal. There was something of a let's-see-what-sticks mentality to the jumble of exhibitors. Next to one urologist discussing sperm motility was a team of enterprising hippies hawking courses in yogic conception. A wellness workshop had been set up in the middle of the hall, decked out in fairy lights and diaphanous white wall hangings, where I watched women on all fours wiggling their hips. Someone mentioned that gel-filled boxer shorts were on sale, designed for men who fret about the temperature of their tackle, but I was unable to source a pair. Problems with male fertility, it turns out, are just as common as female reproductive issues, although the show felt heavily weighted towards women. The session on sperm counts and lifestyle was so oversubscribed that couples jostled for space at the back of the room. Concerned men asked whether excessive cycling or trips to the sauna were obstructing their chances of having children. One man helpfully recommended a specially designed testicle-preserving bike saddle that looks, he said, like a split burger bun. I'd imagine the fertility show might be a sad affair, filled with desperate women pleading with professionals for help. There was a bit of that, but the overwhelming feeling was one of choreographed hope. Stump up the cash, the message seemed to be, and a healthy, happy baby will be yours. No mention of the fact that for a 40-year-old woman, the chance of a successful round of IVF is one in ten. On stage, the ethics of medically-assisted parenthood were either ignored or treated with derision. During a discussion about surrogacy, one speaker complained of, quote, all these new, in inverted commas, women's rights groups talking of babies being ripped from their mother's arms. 
as though there isn't something faintly concerning about rich couples rocking up in Thailand and paying a teenager a few thousand dollars for the use of her womb. During the same session, we were told that one upside of the war in Ukraine is that, quote, the passport office has put in special measures, meaning that now it's much faster for British parents to get their surrogate babies out of the country. Thanks, Vlad. Still, it's difficult to comprehend the horror that must come with discovering you've missed your chance. It's one of life's great cruelties. But I worry that medical intervention is sometimes touted as a lifestyle choice rather than a backstop for the unlucky. There are now firms in America that offer employees egg freezing alongside life insurance and dental care. At the fertility show, I felt at times as though I was watching the cruel consequences of an unwavering faith in choice. We believe we can simply demand what we want when we want it. But life doesn't really work like that. The biggest growth in surrogacy in the past few years has come from single would-be parents, unable to find the right partner with whom to have children. It feels sad and unnatural to me. Surely this is one of those useful restrictions biology puts on us. To have a child, you need to be able to convince someone to have one with you. I can already hear critics objecting that plenty of children are raised by single parents. And they're right, of course. But I'm sure that most single parents would admit that there was rather a partner around. No one denies the good that techniques such as IVF and surrogacy can do. But in the same way that the pill led to the sexual revolution, promises of artificially prolonged fertility have changed the way we think about ourselves. Adolescence seems to have extended deep into adulthood. I have friends who've gone grey before they found a proper job, let alone a wife. Children, it seems to me, aren't just something that's nice to have, another product to post about online. They're a world-changing imposition. Suddenly there's something infinitely more important than you, rubbing ketchup and finger paints into the ruins of what was once your life. Not that I'd know. Rubbish pheromones, apparently. That was Gus Carter. And finally, Graham Thompson. Scheduling open-air concerts in mid-May in Northern Europe is a triumph of hope over experience. I last spent time with Beyoncé, and I'm sure she remembers it fondly and well, in 2016 in a football stadium in Sunderland on a damp, drizzly, early summer English evening of the type that even strutting soul divas struggled to enliven. I don't think it was merely the weather which left me underwhelmed by her brutalist attack, the sheer choreographed drill of the show, the lack of engagement, of spontaneity, of joy. By then, Beyoncé was no longer seeking to be regarded as a mere pop star. She had recently taken on the unearthly qualities of an alien presence, entirely unrelatable, tilting for something far more culturally significant than a spot in the charts. She recast herself as a cross-genre auteur, icon, uber-feminist, woman-scorned and furious black rights campaigner. She did it with conviction. Plenty seemed persuaded. Fast forward seven years and Beyoncé is both more totemic still and yet even less of a pop star than ever before. She doesn't sell the most records, She has a dearth of tunes you can whistle on the bus, and she tours infrequently. Her most recent record, Renaissance, after which the tour is named, landed with the usual fawning fanfare but hasn't really penetrated. It doesn't seem to matter. She is simply Beyoncé, and that appears to be enough. In Edinburgh, the weather was much the same as in Sunderland. Mild, damp, grisly grey. 
But something had changed. The mood felt more attuned to the Renaissance theme of celebratory transgression, its smorgasbord of black musical history powered by liberation, self-love and escape. There were nods to Rose Royce, Shade, Diana Ross, Kendrick Lamar, the Jackson Five and Donna Summer. The mood palette was Christmas with Liberace, silver, tinsel, sparkle, a go-go, designer chintz. The sheer scale of the production made for a dazzling spectacle. Beyonce skidded around on a moon buggy. Lasers fired across the stage. As a finale, she soared high above the audience on a horse, not, alas, a real one. The HD video screens were vast, bigger than any I'd ever seen, making Beyonce seem even more larger than life, defying us to believe that the person in front of us could be real. The music? The music in a stadium show is always liable to sound muddy, imprecise and lacking in nuance. Mixing a live band with electronic beats, the bottom end went deep and low, hardly subtle, but effective for the rhythm-based attack of the Renaissance material. The set was broken into themed sections, political songs with a hip-hop bent, sultry boudoir songs with a bed, each one featuring a fresh set and a costume change entitled like an overpriced celebrity fragrance, opulence, anointed. You get the picture. And the songs? Well, Beyoncé isn't really about the songs, a fact she seemed tacitly to acknowledge by omitting some of her more memorable ones. There was no single ladies, Halo, Diva, Survivor or Drunken Love. Instead, she performed pretty much all of Renaissance and a smattering of tracks from her past work. She frequently indulged in the frustrating trait of performing a verse of one track before veering off into something else. With a few exceptions, the songs weren't going to cut it. The singer, however, was a different matter. You can argue about the depth and profundity of Beyoncé's cultural significance till the cows come home but there is ultimately no denying the power of her physical presence and her voice. For all the spectacle, this turned out to be a singer's show. She began having risen to view through the stage floor with a bunch of ballads, starting with Destiny's Child's Dangerously in Love and moving through the big emotive gears on one plus one. Check the pipes, she seemed to be saying. The Renaissance is her club record. She spent most of the night on the fringes of the dance floor, watching the fun rather than participating. She shimmied infrequently, becoming the still centre as the million-dollar mayhem unfolded around her. The exception, and it was a notable one, was when she led her diverse troupe of dancers through their paces on Break My Soul, where the three-pronged B-stage came into effective play. There was even a glimpse of human frailty during the frantic heated when she stumbled on a lyric. She giggled. Everyone else on stage looked a little nervous. I'd be tempted to go and see Beyoncé again in another seven years. Perhaps the sun might shine next time. Even better. By then she might be ready to come in from the cold and let her music, rather than the hoists, HD screens and horses, do more of the heavy lifting. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Mm-hmm.